You know it's a bad sign when you're about ready to teach and people are pulling out pillows and blankets and <laughs> snuggling in. <laughs> Holy Father, we just pray that you would surround us. Father, would you blanket us with your love tonight? And just fill us up, Lord, with your presence. Father, may we hear your voice tenderly calling to our hearts. Lord, move us into a deeper relationship. Your word says that your love compels us, Lord. And we want to be compelled, uh, driven to all that you have for us. Father, led into the lives and through the lives that you have prepared. And we want to be square in your will, Lord. And we want to be so filled with your love, Father, your passion for us that, that we get it on other people. We want to spill, Father, and to splash over onto those who we love and care about and, Father, so many who don't know you. I'm reminded, Lord, so many not only who we might consider typically lost outside the church, but even so many who sit in churches, Father, who don't know Jesus. Father, I've prayed this prayer before. I pray it again. That there not be a single person who takes a seat in this fellowship who doesn't know Jesus. Or at least, Father, who doesn't come to know Him and quickly. May we not sit here deceived. May we not sit here, Father, for a social engagement um, or a cultural move or a tradition or a family pattern. Father, may we be here for one reason, and that's to see and to be with Jesus Christ. Deepen our relationships with You. We just want to walk with You. We want to be completely restored. Lord, as You and Adam walked in the garden, and Eve, Father, we pray we would walk with You again like that. So, again, Father, allure our souls, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. It's a song, as we talked about Sunday, that magnifies marriage. It reveals God's intentional intimacy with Israel. It portrays the courtship of the church. But most of all, and A number one, and where our focus will be, is this is a personal poem. This is a song from the Father's heart to you. Individually, If you don't hear the Father's love, by the time we're a few verses in tonight, you're missing something. Because that, I am absolutely convinced, is why the Song of Songs has been included as authoritative in Scripture, as inspired, as accepted as God's Word, because it is God's Word to you personally. To me, to those of us who walk with Him, who who know Jesus. This is a wedding invitation, but again, as I said Sunday, not to come to the wedding, but to be in the wedding, on the stage, next to the groom, the bride prepared to be wed to Christ. Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. Your homework assignment to memorize this, and if you haven't started, get started. One line, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. In fact, why don't you say that after me? I am my beloved's. And His desire is for me. One more time. I am my beloved's. And His desire is for me. No, His desire is for me. No, it's for me. (laughs) We can argue about this later. It's all about Jesus' love for His bride. 
But I don't even want you to get lost. I don't believe the Lord wants you to get lost in His bride, the generic church. Yeah, I'm in there somewhere, and His love generically for all of us. You, intimately, personally, it's a song to you. And the Father sings it to you and to me. The lens, if you will, for sound interpretation of the Bible is always Jesus. When you come to Scripture, you put on the lens of Jesus Christ. And if you're having trouble not understanding any aspect of Scripture, if you will put on the lens of Jesus and look at it as to how it either explains Jesus, or defines Jesus, or expresses Jesus' heart to you, you will understand Scripture, I believe, correctly. Some of you know I've been doing some reading about Hudson Taylor, and I've picked up a few books that that he wrote One back in 1893, and I would highly recommend it. It's a little booklet. It's a gem of a book called Union and Communion, Thoughts on the Song of Solomon. And in that book, he starts out about the second paragraph. He says, read without the key, this book is specially unintelligible. But that key is easily found in the express teachings of the New Testament. He says, the incarnate word is the true key to the written word. That's beautiful. The incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, is the true key to the written Word, God's Word, the Bible. And we read this Sunday, John 3.29, John the Baptist, speaking to his disciples, said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. It's all about Jesus, John the Baptist said. Now, I know many of you have heard this before, but does it hurt to be reminded that as we open up the Bible, we are opening to draw near to Jesus Christ? That is our first and primary reason for even being here. Now, there are three voices you're going to hear throughout this song. Three primary singers, if you will. The first voice you're going to hear belongs to the Shulamit, or the bride. Shulamit, the feminine form of Shaloma, Solomon. Because she's the one who takes his name. He gives his name to her. By the end of the book, she is called the the Shulamit. So she takes his name. She's going to be the first one to sing. And she sings a lot in the opening chapters. She is enamored with her love, and we'll get there. The second voice you'll hear actually belongs to the chorus. The chorus of singers who add narrative and, and flow to the song. Who is this chorus? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And the third and final voice that you'll hear in this song belongs to Shaloma, Solomon himself, the groom. So those three voices. And as we go along, I'll be careful to let you know who's singing when, as far as my understanding is concerned. There are a couple places where uh, translators are not exactly sure, but there are hints even there to figure out who is doing the singing. And I mentioned on Sunday, you might be wise to do this, to take, uh, I have a pink highlighter and a blue highlighter and a green one. And I highlighted everything along the, just in the margin. I highlighted a pink line where the bride's singing, and a blue line where the groom is singing, and then a green line wherever the chorus jumps in. And that has helped me to follow this a lot easier. For you note takers, the Song of Songs can be taken or considered in six acts, or canticles. Maybe you've heard it called the canticles. A canticle is a little song. And we begin to realize as we study through this that the Song of Songs is actually made up of six little songs that make up the broader arrangement or the broader song. And so we're going to go through these one at a time. In fact, we'll probably take about one a week so that we can really uh, dig in and, and see what is said in each one. The first act or the first canticle is from chapter 1, verse 2 
through chapter 2, verse 7. I'll lay these out for you so if you want to make little marks in your margin to follow this. The first act, chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 7. That's what we'll look at tonight. I call that act reminiscing. The second act is chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5. And the second act I would call seeking and finding. Seeking and finding. The lovers are looking for each other. And then they find each other. It's marvelous. So the second act, seeking and finding, chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5. The third act, or third canticle, returning and wedding. It's the return of the king. And it's the wedding day of the king. Chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1. If you miss any of these, check with me afterwards and I can give them to you. The fourth act, I would call losing and finding. We already had in the second act, seeking and finding. In the fourth act, we have losing and finding because we discover we have a fickle bride. We'll get there. Losing and finding. That's chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 6, verse 9. The fifth act picks up in chapter 6, verse 10, and runs to chapter 8, verse 4, and I would just call that the Shulamit. It is all the grooms singing about his bride. That's going to feel good when we get there. So that's act number five. And the sixth and final canticle is what I would call the final calling. The final calling, chapter 8, verse 5, through the end, verse 14 of chapter 8. So that covers kind of an outline of the song, if you need that. Now, one last thing before we dive in. We can outline it, we can pull it apart, but I'll tell you the one thing I hated in literature classes in college was ripping apart poems, which we were required to do. You had to figure out to get all the critics and read what they had to say and go line by line and tear it up. And, and by the time you're done with it, especially as a collegiate, you get done with ripping apart the poem and all of the passion's gone. It's just this, this thing, it's this scholarly understanding. Well, I don't want to do that. And we are going to go carefully, like we do as we study through the words, but please remember this is not for biblical understanding. This is for personal affection. And if you find yourself more affectionate toward the Lord at the end of each time that we take one of these acts or one of these canticles, then we've accomplished why we're here. If you find yourself going, well, I understand that better, thank you, you know, then you, you've missed it. <laughs> Interpretation is important, but incarnation is everything. As Paul said, it's all about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 That is always our purpose. Let's not just learn the song, let's learn how to sing it. Now the song, it doesn't follow a strict chronology. We open up to the Act, act 1, reminiscing. Because as it begins, what, what we come across is at the very beginning, the bride is reminiscing. She, she may even perhaps be... And I may be reading into this to understand there's some wiggle room here. She may be retelling the story of their meeting, because she does talk about how she meets the groom, her shepherd, who ends up being the king. She recounts that story. And the chorus is there. So my guess is that she's retelling the story of the meeting to the daughters there of Zion in the king's court. She's talking about him. She's there in the court, and she's reminiscing. Chapter 2 or chapter 1, verse 2. May He kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you. And let us run together. The King has brought me 
into His chambers. Now as much as I don't want to pick it apart, you know what? Two and a half verses into the opening act and already there are several amazing applications of this song as it pertains to Jesus. In fact, you might be able to understand why in 1135 AD, Bernard of Clairvaux died after delivering 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. I don't know if he dropped dead right behind the pulpit or if it was you know, a couple days later, but he had gone through a series, opened up Song of Songs and began to preach. 86 sermons. And he only reached chapter 2. <laughs> so his disciple, a guy by the name of Gilbert Poritanus, Gilbert picked up the mantle and began to preach as well. He preached a further 48 sermons and then he died. Which doesn't bode well. I know, for me, I'm thinking, maybe we'll just go right on to Isaiah. And, and this guy, Gilbert, only got as far as chapter 5. Never even finished. And if you look down through Century, I have a book that is that thick at home that is a, a book of sermons that was given by, and why is his name failing me here the, the prince of preachers the um hmm? spurgeon yes thank you uh, spurgeon doing sermons on the song of songs and each sermon he takes one verse and there's there's got to be two or three hundred of them in this book amazing you can get lost in here well my purpose with this song is not to kill or be killed but i do want to be biblical <laughs> So check this out. A few applications here that show us Jesus. The bride first speaks of the kisses of His mouth. And kisses reveal obviously both affection but also connection. Like we talked about on Sunday, when the veil is lifted and the marriage kiss takes place, there's an immediate connection there. There's a consecration. There's an outward symbol of something that's going on in the heart between the groom and the bride. The kisses of His mouth. Psalm 2.12 reads in the King James, and by the way, it's a really good translation, kiss the Son. If you have a New American Standard Bible, what I preach out of, it says do homage to the Son, but the word is kiss. Kiss the Son, lest He become angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. I get the picture of a bride and a groom standing there, and the, the preacher says, you may kiss the bride, and the bride goes, uh-uh. The bride says, What? You don't want to kiss me? Do you really want to kindle my wrath at our wedding? (laughs) It's it's a little weird. Kiss the sun lest he get angry with you. Well, that's not a very good motivation to kiss the sun. Well, listen to the rest of the verse. Psalm 2.12 Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. What he's saying, what the psalmist is saying there is kiss the sun now. Kiss Him. Give yourself to Him wholeheartedly. Enter into intimate relationship right now. You'll be blessed by trusting your life in His hand. But those who deny the Son, who reject the Son, ultimately are going to face the wrath. You don't want to be in that place then. You want to be in this place now. So the kiss of the King speaks of the seal of a true forever love. She's saying, kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. That's what I long for. That connection, that pure love and affection of the King. She mentions a love that is better than wine. I like that. A love better than wine. Paul says, Ephesians 5.18, Don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. His love is better than wine. How so? Well, Spurgeon pointed out these few things that I will share with you. Christ's love may be taken without question. 
You can take all you want. You can imbibe fully in the love of Jesus. No need for moderation. No need for concern over drinking too much or what someone might say if they see you over-loving Jesus. It's cool, man. You can have all you want. Christ may be taken without question. His love. Christ's love is to be had without money. It's free for the asking. Have you ever walked through the wine section in a grocery store and seen the prices? Are you kidding me? And the prices of a glass of wine in a restaurant is as much as a bottle in the store. It's nuts. But the love of Jesus is free. It's yours for the asking. Christ's love is pure. Wine's not. Wine has what's called lees in it. You know what lees are? Residual grape scum. That's why wine sits in those barrels. The grape scum has to sift down to the bottom and they have to kind of scrape the scum out because if you had a bottle of wine with the scum in it, it'd be gross. It'd be disgusting. But Christ's love is pure. You never end up with some scum. (laughs) You end up with Jesus, which is good. Who wants to be with the scum? You know what I'm saying? Christ's love never gets syrupy. And it never gets vinegary. It's never super sweet. It's never super sour. It's always absolutely perfect. It never goes bad. Christ's love clears the head. You know, it's not inebriating. It's exhilarating. So you can see why she would say your love is better than wine. Solomon said back in Proverbs 23, 29, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. And the the bride would say, linger long over Jesus because He's better than wine. And Christ's love is joy to the fullest. Better than wine. Joy to the fullest. Wine, Wine symbolizes joy in Scripture, even in life. Break out the bottle of wine. Let's rejoice. Let's have joy. But the reality is Christ's love is full and complete joy overflowing. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He said in John 16, 24, Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. You hear the interaction that Jesus wants to have? He wants to fill you up. To fill me up overflowing. And in John 17, 13, we listen in as He's talking to the Father and He says, Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy full in themselves. That's His desire. That we be filled up to overflowing with His joy. So so the kisses of His mouth, your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Everyone loves this guy. Everyone loves Jesus. Who knows Jesus. And so the third thing we see is a fragrant name that's like poured oil. Now, we know often in the Scriptures, oil speaks of the Holy Spirit, but not here. We'll see the Holy Spirit throughout and in many passages in the Song of Songs. But that's not what's being talked about here. Because this is an oil, not of anointing. This is literally where it says purified oil. This is a poured oil. It's a poured oil. It's a scented oil. He's talking about perfume. You remember Mary's faithful anointing of Jesus? I mentioned that on Sunday. There at Bethany, that expensive oil of pure nard that the smell filled the whole entire house. 
Street value? Street value of the of the oil that she anointed Jesus' feet with. That perfume would be it was at that time equal to a year's salary. And she poured it on Jesus. And I was thinking about that and how the whole house smelled. And how when they left there that night, probably some of the apostles were going, Man, I just can't get this stuff off me. And that's the idea. I'll, I'll hug Cheryl in the morning, sometimes right before she's leaving, and I can usually smell her perfume on my collar for, you know, at least half hour, an hour later. She put on a lot, maybe two hours. <laughs> Gang, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we smell like Him. And it's a good smell. Further away from Jesus we get, and you could say the more we stink, but we get close to Him and His scent gets on us. And the more we embrace Him, the longer that scent stays with us. Paul said, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one an aroma from death to death, to the other the aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? I mean, that's just amazing. Paul's going, we are Christ's aroma. That's mind-blowing. I'm not up to that. You're not up to that. But, but His scent gets on us. And if we're spending time with Him, people are going to smell it. They're going to say, what is that? What is that? That smells good. Now the perfume most often mentioned eight times in the Song of Songs is myrrh. Myrrh as a perfume. The scent that filled the house following the visit of the Magi to the infant Jesus. The scent that the women probably carried on their way down to embalm His body. In fact, I think it was the same stuff. That myrrh that the Magi gave to Mary, I think she saved and was carrying to the tomb on that Sunday morning, not realizing she would never have to use it. The scent of myrrh. So a fragrant name like perfume and love better than wine and the kisses of his mouth. The fourth thing we see here is the king's chambers. And again, we talked about this Sunday, but I remind you, in Jewish tradition, the groom would go out, get his bride, and bring her into his chamber that he had built onto his father's house. Bring her to the chamber, and they would shut in for seven days. The meals would be brought in, and they would just enjoy each other for the first seven days. And Jesus promises the same for his bride. John 14:2. in my father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is one of the most intimate passages in all of Scripture right there. And I never used to read it that way. I didn't have thought, oh, that's Jesus saying He's going to go take us to heaven. Well, yeah, but it's a place that He's preparing, and He's going to take you there so you can be where He is. You know what that means? That means He's going to be there. That means He's going to draw us into that chamber and be in that place with us. The rabbis even came to call the Song of Songs the Holy of Holies in the Bible. They realized the king's chambers speak of the dwelling place of the Most High, the Holy of Holies. Psalm 91 verse 1 tells us, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And you know, not everyone can go into the chambers. The chambers of the King. Now if you want to go into the chamber of the King, only the purified can go in there, and only the priestly. And the bride is both. Isn't that marvelous? If we were Israel, 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, If we were Israel, only one among us 
the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. The rest of us would have to stay out. But in God's economy for the church, His bride has been purified, His bride is priestly, and the door is wide open. Come in to the chamber of the King. You're invited. Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, Ephesians 5.25, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. But notice that in verse 3, the bride does sing that the maidens love you. Therefore, she says, the maidens love you. Who are these maidens? This is the chorus. That third group within the song, you've got the bride, you have the groom, you have the chorus. The chorus is the maidens. You will hear them sing in this song. In fact, they sing in the latter part of verse 4. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Sings the chorus, sings the daughters of Jerusalem. They will be named in the song as we come into it, the daughters of Jerusalem. And they will often sing in response to the bride. In response to her talking about the groom, or or in response to the commands of the groom, the chorus will come in and sing a few lines. And by the way, there's a clue to who these daughters of Zion are. An interesting clue. Note that they are called maidens there in verse 3. The Hebrew word for maiden is Alma. And Alma also means virgins. Virgins. These daughters of Zion, these virgins of the court of the king. This is not a harem. These are not women there to pleasure the king. This is a group of virgins, daughters there in the court. And there's a clue to who they are in that description. But keep a finger in Song of Songs and go over to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. Verse 1. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise or prudent. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks or reservoirs along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him! And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the, to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, Jesus says, for you do not know the day or the hour. Who are these virgins? They're bridesmaids, we know that. They're not the bride. So therefore, this is not a parable about the church. Because the church is the bride, not the bridesmaids. So these virgin bridesmaids, daughters of Zion, if you put them all together, I believe they represent Israel in the tribulation. Israel in the tribulation. That is the Jewish people on earth at the time the church has been taken, the church is is home with Jesus. We've been pulled out, raptured. And for a seven-year period, during our seven-year honeymoon, 
You've got the bridesmaids there. Now follow this through with me. These are not the Daniels or the Jeremiahs or the Moseses of Scripture. They're not the faithful of Israel prior to Jesus' coming. They're not those Jewish people who after Jesus' coming have given their lives to Jesus, Messianic Jews, or those who are just Christians. They were once Jewish, now they're Christian. Because they're all part of the church. This is talking about a specific group. Two types of Jewish people in the tribulation. And you can listen online for more of this because I talk about this in depth in Matthew 25 in the teaching when we did the book of Matthew. But just a little bit for tonight. The foolish ones, note this, have no extra oil. And this oil does speak of the Holy Spirit. Virgins without oil. In the tribulation period. They don't have the Holy Spirit, therefore they are not prepared, they are not ready when Jesus, when the King returns for the marriage feast, which happens at the end of the tribulation. And again, if I lose you, just go listen to this online. I'm flying through this. The wise ones, the wise ones do have the Spirit. But note this, they're all sleepy. They all miss the first coming. They all misunderstand. They all are not ready at that time. But the five who are sleepy without oil don't have the Spirit. The five who are sleepy with oil, well, who are these? Who are these virgin bridesmaids that get to go in, who who, who sing along with the bride and the groom? Revelation chapter 7, verse 4 says, I heard the number of those who were sealed. They were the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There will be 144,000 Jewish people in the tribulation who have the Spirit, who receive the Holy Spirit because they give their lives to Jesus. And they become literally evangelists in the tribulation, sealed by the Spirit. To be sealed is to have the Spirit. Right now, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of the living God. Your salvation is secure because you have the seal of the Spirit. Well, these 144,000 will have that same seal. And by the way, later in Revelation, Revelation 14, verse 4, it says this about that group. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are virgins. Virgins. Bridesmaids with the oil. They go when the king calls. They're ready to go. I believe the daughters of Zion, and you're going to see them singing throughout the Song of Songs, I think we can make a clear case that the daughters of Zion, the singers, the chorus, is those Jewish people who sing for the bride and for the groom. Alright? So you can think about that more and, and chew on that. The wise virginal bridal party. Now, from this time forward, they're going to interject choruses into the song. And so they interject, We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you, they sing. And here comes the bride <laughs> singing. And she starts to sing now of her shepherd, the stranger shepherd, who at first she didn't realize was her king. She says in verse 5, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They may be caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Now understand something. Quickly, right up front, the word black here does not refer to race. Because the Shulamite bride is a Middle Eastern Israeli woman. Okay? She's not of African heritage. No, the bride. The bride here is saying, I am sakor in the Hebrew. Sakor, what does that mean? It means dark, copper-toned, sun-tanned, sun-burned. And so she's describing not 
her race, but the result of her hard life outdoors. And she was saying, I am burned here. I have been hours under the sun. We spent five weeks talking about life under the sun, didn't we? And that's where she's at. I'm under the sun. That's the state of the bride before she meets the groom. She's weary, she's worn, she's burned by the harsh reality of life under the sun. As the Lord said would happen to all of us. What do you mean? He said to Adam in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And so the woman is saying, look, here, here's the deal. I'm worn out. I'm sunburned. I'm working hard. And I see this beautifully handsome shepherd come along and I'm like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I've been living here life under the sun. And then we meet the shepherd. And at the first meeting, the bride obviously thinks the shepherd, the king, was a shepherd by her very questions. Look at verse 7. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture? Now the translators added your flock, but that's what she's implying. Where do you pasture? Where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? Now, if he had immediately answered, I can almost imagine him saying, Oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. But what she's saying right here, she's looking at him, she sees a shepherd, and as she's describing this to the daughters of Zion, she says, I I looked, and I said, Tell me, oh, you who my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? Where are you from? She's saying. Where do you do your work? Because I, I want to know how to find you. <laughs> or, give me your number. Can I text you? You know, where are you from? Is the question she's asking. And then she goes on and says, For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Well, what's she saying here? The veil that she's talking about is not at this point yet the wedding veil. It's The veil is a sign of modesty. Why should I cover myself up, you know, especially for a woman who's unspoken for? Why should I play this modest role? I want to remove the veil so I can be real with you. I want to enter into authentic relationship with you. In fact, I want to be spoken for by you so I don't have to walk around here wearing this veil all the time. So in this point of modesty, she's asking, where are you? Where can I find you? I want to know you. I want to be known by you, she's saying. And of course, you know, 2 Corinthians 3.16, that's the key, isn't it? Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Turn to the Lord. She's turning to the shepherd. She wants the veil to be removed. Now, I know when Paul says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, I know he's talking about understanding. You know, the veil that that blinds even Israel today in the reading of the Scriptures, to, to not understand that veil is in the way. But when you turn to Jesus, the veil gets lifted. But you know, when you turn to Jesus, not only the veil of understanding, but the veil of anonymity is removed as well. What do you mean? I mean, you can't just be one of the crowd with Jesus. When you turn to Jesus, I prayed earlier that, you know, that God would 
allow us to speak Jesus into the lives of even those who just sit in church and think they're saved, but they're really not. A tragedy to me in the American church is when people sit in church and they have no idea who Jesus is. And they're content to be part of the crowd. If you turn to Jesus, you are no longer part of the crowd. You are one-on-one. It is you and Him. That's marvelous to me. Now the lover pops his head into the room. The bride is singing to the daughters of Zion there. The lover pops his head into the room and momentarily joins the reminiscing. He sings in verse 8, If you yourself do not know, that is, if you don't know where I am or where I pasture my flock, if you don't know most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherd. This is great. He's, he's kind of toying with her a little bit. He's being flirtatious. It's a playfulness in the beloved's response to his love. He, he senses her attraction. He knows his own. And so he begins to allure her. Well, where do you get that? Well, we'll notice this. She asks, where can I find you? Where do you pasture your flock? And he doesn't tell her. He doesn't say, oh, it's right over in Jerusalem, actually. In <laughs> the king's palace. That's where I keep my flock. That's where I live. I'm the king. He doesn't say that. Not yet. He says, you don't know? I love this. You don't know who I am, do you? Well, follow along. Follow along my shepherds. He knows the shepherds are going to lead the sheep back to Jerusalem eventually. So she follows along. She's going to end up in Jerusalem. So he's, he's toying with her in a really romantic way here. He is alluring her. And that is what Jesus does. That's just like Jesus. What are you talking about? Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. At the beginning of this gospel, John is describing the apostles beginning to meet Jesus. Listen to how it began. John 1.35, he says... The next day, John was standing, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples... And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God! Well, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? Same question the bride asked. Where do you pasture your flock? Where are you staying? He doesn't say, Well, I'm staying at Pete's house in Capernaum. No, he says, come and you will see. This is Jesus' language. He allures us. He wants us to come with him. Well, tell me about yourself, Jesus. Well, spend some time with me. Well, just give me the nuts and bolts of religion. I don't do that. You want to be saved? Come get to know me. It's not about the one, two, three. It's not about the plan, the steps. It's about relationship. Come and see, he says. Come and see. So the Spirit has this alluring effect on people who check out Jesus. Because Jesus is Himself alluring. That's how He works. He said in John 6.44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The church has over the years tried to come up with little steps, you know, the four spiritual laws, or the five steps of salvation. Or these these differently. Do these things and you will get there. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Just come and see. Do you realize that your job and my job is so easy in evangelism? That's all we have to do. Come see. We don't have to explain Jesus. 
We don't have to, you know, know all of the tenets of theology. We just say, come check out Jesus. I got a church in this barn. You wouldn't believe it. It's really weird. Come see. Kind of the old bait and switch. Come check out the barn. And then they meet Jesus. <laughs> come and see. He goes on in the, in the description. They came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him, that is, followed Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So you see how it happens? Jesus says to Andrew, Come and see. And then Andrew grabs Peter and says, Come and see. And it's a very simple process of drawing someone into relationship. Don't fear. Glenn and I were talking about this Sunday. Don't fear turning someone off by the mention of the name Jesus. It's the biggest lie the enemy has given to the church that if we talk about Jesus with people who may or may not be Christians, if we talk about Jesus, we might be offensive. You will be shocked to realize that when you talk about Jesus and not church, people tend to be interested. Not always. I realize there are some very hard-hearted people out there. But most people, if you just talk Jesus, you say, come and see. They hear that. There's an alluring to Him. Jesus is alluring, but His flock also has a role to play. Back in the Song of Songs, where do you pasture your sheep, He says. Where are you from? And He says, if you don't know, trail after My flock. Follow along, and you will see. So how do we know our shepherd? Like Andrew, we just say, come and see. Come and see. Verse 9, the groom is still singing. He says, to me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Just call me a horse face. What's that about? (laughs) And some of the description in here you will laugh at because it's just not the way we describe our loved ones. But, But listen to this. Mares were not used to draw chariots. He's saying something very special here. It was the stallion's job to draw the chariots. So what is this mare among the chariots of Pharaoh? He's simply implying that her beauty is unique. She is a one of a kind to him. She's the only mare in a stable full of stallions. Can you imagine how nuts those stallions would have been? (laughs) Talk about a recipe for chaos. Bring a mare into a stable full of stallions and just let them loose. And he's saying, that's what I see in you. You're the only woman in a world full of stallions, men. You're the only one for me, he says. And in verse 10 he says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck with strings of beads. She who was once unkempt and unkept in the vineyard is now adorned with beauty. And he's having a part in the transformation of her. He is transforming her. Note that. The groom is transforming the bride. It's how King Jesus transforms us. Isaiah 61 verse 10. Isaiah said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. Remember what Isaiah said before? My robes are of, they're filthy rags. I'm just filthy, disgusting rags. But He has clothed me with the robe of salvation. 
He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Jewelry that adorns. She is adorned. Your cheeks are lovely. Your neck with strings of beads. And so the bridegroom is singing of the bride. Look at yourself. You're beautiful. You're wearing salvation and righteousness and and the gifts of the Spirit. Jewelry for Jesus. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. And and then the daughters of Zion who have been listening to this interplay back and forth between between the bride and, and, and the groom... They just can't contain themselves anymore and they bust into the song. Verse 11, We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. They sing. Well, daughters of Zion, that's hardly your place. The, The groom will give her the adornment, right? Jesus adorns us with salvation. He adorns us with sanctification. He adorns us with the seal of His Spirit and with spiritual gifts. He gives us all of these things But as we see in each other, listen, as we see in each other what He sees in us, we start to adorn each other. We start to say, Ben, I know what one of your gifts is, man. You have a gift of service. It's jewelry from Jesus. It's not mine to give, but I recognize it in you. I see it in you. And as we begin to call these things out in encouragement one to another, the more I see Jesus who I love in you, the more I love you. And the more I love you, the more I want to see and encourage you to walk in the adornment of the Spirit. And so we get into this really cool thing and the the daughters of Zion jump in and sing, we want to be part of it, can we help adorn the bride too? And this is how we function as a body as well. Verse 12, now the bride starts to sing again. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. Now she's talking about him, so I think he just ducked out of the room. My beloved is to me as a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. She's singing about her beloved. She's describing him as though, again, perhaps he's left the room, but she is just enchanted with him. And she describes him. She uses a two couple of noteworthy things as she sings. She says he has he's got the fragrance of myrrh. It's as though he were a pouch of myrrh that I hold right to my chest so that I can smell it all night long. I have him right there in my heart. And I pointed out myrrh is used eight times in this song. If you've never smelled myrrh, I've got some at the house. You need to smell it. It's it's a powerful and potent and sweet perfume. It's got a strong fragrance that could easily awaken the olfactory senses. In fact, when I smell that little bottle of myrrh, if I take the lid off and smell it, I'm immediately transported back to that um, spice shop in Israel where I bought it. Because it just reminds me, it's just that memory. And you know how the nose works. How, how it just brings to mind memories. Myrrh being a burial spice also reminds you, reminds me of another strong memory, the death of Jesus. How often do you remember the cross? How often do you go back to remember the crucifixion? From time to time, someone will ask, do you take communion every week at this church? Isn't that overkill? Aren't you taking it too much? This cup, Jesus said, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he put no limitations on how often. 
The more often we can take it, the better. The more often we go back to the cross and remember what He did, the better. Myrrh, to get the sweet scent out of it, has to be crushed. Just like Jesus was crushed at Calvary to release that sweet fragrance. And we go back to Calvary. You know, if you could go back every day, I would encourage you to do it. To remember the cross every day. How much He loved you that He was crushed for you. So she describes Him as the fragrance of myrrh, but she also describes Him as a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know Engedi is a rocky region. It's, you're headed down toward the Dead Sea. It's hot, it's dry, rocky crags everywhere, not a whole lot of foliage, except what the Israelis have, have planted, and they've done some amazing things down in that area to, to grow things in, in a harsh environment. But if Engedi's a desert, then what's she talking about? Henna blossoms. Henna blossoms in Engedi, in the vineyards, nonetheless, of Engedi. Listen, Engedi itself is in a desert region, but it is an oasis. That's where David hid, and it wasn't just harsh, cold rocks. If you see Engedi, it's like a, a rocky crag that goes up into the mountain, and it, there's a green seam that runs up the crag, and there's a waterfall up there. Where the rains come down from Jerusalem, they make their way down, and they come out that waterfall, and apparently Solomon was wise enough to figure out how to have vineyards in that region as well. So what she's saying is, my beloved is like the oasis of Engedi. He's like an oasis in a desert of men. And he is as pure as those white henna blossoms tend to be in an otherwise very dry region. But this little flower caught the attention of the rabbis. As they read the Song of Songs, they began to see something here. The name of the flower, we see henna blossom. But what they saw was the Hebrew word kafar. Kafar. Yom kafar. The word for henna here is the word for atonement. And in fact, some rabbis have translated this particular verse, My beloved is unto me the man who propitiates all things. My beloved is the one who atones for everything. My beloved is the one who has redeemed me. My beloved is the one who restores me. My beloved is the one who washes, who purifies, who cleanses me. Just as Christ washes and purifies and cleanses the church. And John tells us in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, she is just enamored of Him. He's like myrrh, sweet fragrance. He's like a cluster of those beautiful little henna blossoms. He is like an atonement for me. And then the beloved pops his head back into the room in verse 15 and he sings just one verse. He sings, How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. <laughs> really? What? I, what is this? My eyes are like doves? According to rabbinical teaching, a bride who had beautiful eyes had a beautiful character. But a bride with weak eyes, well, you remember Leah. Leah in Genesis 29-17, Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful of form and faith. I, I, I always wonder what um, Leah really looked like. 
What, what does it mean to have weak eyes? Was she cross-eyed? Is that it? She's like, where are you, man? Where's the guy? I don't know. I just had a veil on and now here I am. You know, perhaps she was horsey-faced too. I have no idea. Leah's eyes were weak. And I think because of the Rachel and the Leah story, that's why the rabbis say, you want a bride with beautiful eyes. And guys, single guys, you want to find a bride with beautiful eyes. But I'm not talking physically. How does the dove imagery play into this? The dove portrayed tranquility and peace. When I look at your eyes, I think of doves because when I look into your eyes, I see a peaceful woman. I see just this amazing peace. Dove eyes. (laughs) Peaceful eyes. Take it a step further. What does a dove represent in Scripture? The Holy Spirit. I see the Spirit in your eyes. This is what I see when I look at you. Romans 8, 6, the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that, single guys, is what you want to look for, is a woman who has the Spirit in her eyes. And you know, you just see. You can see someone who's walking in the Spirit. Just by looking into their eyes, you can see the sparkle. And I guarantee you the eyes aren't crossed. They're not going, which way did Jesus go? I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) So he comes in there. He sings, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. He just keeps building her up. You notice this? He just, everything he has to say about her is good. This woman who he found dirty in the vineyard is now adorned and beautiful. And he just keeps singing beauty. And she says in verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved. This is truly the mutual admiration society. So pleasant. Indeed, she sings, our couch is luxuriant. The word for luxuriant there, you might note this means green or flourishing. The beams of our houses are cedars. Our rafters are cypresses. And then she sings, note this, she sings, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Wait a minute. Who sings that? The bride does. Well, okay, show of hands. How many of you thought Jesus was the rose of Sharon? Yeah, or or that Jesus is the lily of the valley. Guess what? Uh Uh-uh. It's not Jesus. (laughs) This was a shocker to me too. Old hymns, we even have a a current worship song we sing. He's the lily of the valley, you know, the bright and morning star. Well, he's not the lily of the valley. You are. The bride is. What? Yes, listen. The rose of Sharon. What she's describing here is how she feels. Having come from where she was, how she feels now on Solomon's luxuriant couch, in his cedar homes and his cypress rafters, she says, I feel like a rose in the Sharon. I feel like a lily in the valley. What does that mean? The rose of Sharon. Another word for it is the crocus. It's the one, well, one of two times in all the Hebrew scriptures that this word is even used. The other time is Isaiah 35, verse 1. It's Kabat Salet in the Hebrew. Isaiah 35, 1, The wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabo will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and with shouts of joy. So the rose is the crocus. Note this, and it blossoms profusely. Okay? 
And in this profuse blossoming, it's in the Sharon Valley, the rose of the Sharon. Well, where's the Sharon? It's that fertile coastal region of Israel. It runs from uh, the Mediterranean Sea, from Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritima, along what's called um, the Via Maris, the way by the sea. It runs all the way from Caesarea down through present-day Netanya, down to Tel Aviv and Yaffa, or Joppa. And that is called the Sharon Valley. And it's the most fertile area in all of Israel. I feel like a rose in the Sharon. Gang, there would be thousands upon thousands of roses, of crocuses in the Sharon. Nothing special about this one. There's plenty of them. Sometimes when I think about the multitudes in heaven worshiping the Lord, sometimes, as much as I long to be there and I do, I think, but yeah, I'll just be one of a multitude. Remember what I said earlier? Not in Jesus' company. You are never part of the crowd. You are always one-on-one with Jesus. But she says, this is how I feel. I'm just one of a bunch here. The lily of the valley. The lily, another common flower that just grows everywhere. I'm like that, she says. There's humility in her voice. I'm in the midst of these lush green couches and cedar homes of Solomon. Just call me Common Lily Crocus. (laughs) That's my name. I am Common Lily Crocus. I am nothing special. But notice something is happening to her. She's changing. It was just a few verses ago when she was singing, Don't look at me. Don't look at me. I'm swarthy. I'm sunburned. I, I'm working hard and dirty. And you, you Don't look at me. And he sees beauty in her. And he says to her back in verse 8, You're most beautiful among women. And then he brings her in. And he begins to love on her. And he begins to adorn her. And now, at least now, she's saying, she's Lily Crocus. Alright? At least now, she's she will accept that she's a flower. But she's nothing special. She's just one among tons of different flowers. And I love this because the king is changing how she sees herself. He's changing her by loving her. And he responds to her in verse 2 after she says, I'm nothing special. He says, like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. No offense, daughters of Zion. (laughs) You may be a lily. Fine. You want to call yourself Lily Crocus? Good. But understand that you make the daughters of Zion look like thorns by comparison. You are beautiful to me. You see what just happened here? She humbled herself and he lifted her up. You humble yourself and he lifts you up. Matthew 23.12 Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. James 4.10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. So my friends, you may not have known it, but you are the lily of the valley. You're the rose of Sharon and He would say to you, you're not just a lily of the valley. You are like a lily among thorns. You are precious and unique to Me. Now Act 1 begins to wind down. We get to verse 3 of chapter 2. She sings the bride, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, his banner over me, his love. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Fig Newtons. 
Refresh me with apples because I am lovesick. And then she says, and this is a beautiful picture, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Get that picture. What is she saying? Let his left hand cradle my head while his right hand reaches around and embraces me. Do you see the affectionate hold that he has? And she's describing this and she's singing it. She's saying, hold me close, my beloved. Be my cover of love. Sustain me. Refresh me with good fruit. Why does she need to be sustained and refreshed in the arms of her love? I'll tell you why. Because His very presence takes her breath away. This picture as she sings here is she is swooning. (laughs) She is just so enamored by Him, so blown away by His love. She's swooning and He has to catch her. She's swooning in His embrace. And there is a picture here of the Bride of Christ swooning into the presence of Jesus when we come into the King's chambers. Gang, when this church is raptured, I'll tell you what, the most exciting experience of the rapture is not going to be the flight. It's going to be the immediate arrival. The flight is the blink of an eye. The flight comes, happens in a twinkle. We won't even know what has happened. We will just suddenly be in the presence of the Bridegroom. And we will swoon. I guarantee it. Every one of us. I don't swoon. You're going to swoon. <laughs> you're going to see Jesus and you're going to fall and need Him to catch you. And I don't even know for how long we're just going to be going, sustain us, Lord. We can't even bear what we're seeing here. And then we'll be on a seven-year honeymoon with Jesus in His loving embrace held by Him, loved by Him in the place that He promised. The groom says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds or deer of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Note that if you're not reading a New American Standard Bible, the word is she. The word is not it. Do not arouse my love until she pleases. It's the singular feminine third person. He's talking about her. Don't arouse her. He's not saying, don't arouse my love until it pleases, until I want to love her. He's saying, as he holds her in his embrace, as she has swooned in his arms, as she has nearly passed out with love and adoration for him, he looks at the daughters of Zion and says, don't wake her. Let her stay. Don't stir her up. Let her rest in my arms for a while. Just let her stay. So the first canticle ends with the swooning bride in the arms of her beloved. And her beloved is just loving it. In the same way, Jesus... Listen, Jesus just loves the long moments where He gets to be with you. Jesus would say to you and to me, and I'm getting ahead of my teaching on Sunday, but i got to tell you this. Jesus would say... To all those around, as we are in the presence of Jesus, He would say, don't don't bother them. Let them stay here as long as they want to. Let her stay in my embrace as long as she wants to. Let him stay on his knees in prayer as long as... Don't bother him right now. I adjure you. Let him stay here. Such is the heart of Jesus for you. Lord Jesus, we see how you allure us 
we see how your passion and your presence simply overcomes the bride. And Lord, we want to be overcome by You. Father, that our lives, that when we get into these moments of intimacy with You, we're talking with You, we're praying, we're worshiping, that we just don't want to leave the embrace. We want to hold on. But Lord Jesus, what is absolutely stunning to me as a parent from Scripture is that You want us to stay in Your embrace. Lord Jesus, keep us there. In Jesus' name. Amen.